0: We are back from hiatus at last. Welcome to episode 373 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express don't reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our customers, our families, our friends, our pets, pretty much nobody, maybe not even us three weeks from today. Joining me on the News Roundup will be Matthew Hyman, who's a senior fellow and director of planning at the National Security Institute uh, at George Mason, Michael Ellis, who has held lots of positions in Congress and the White House uh, and is the founder and principal of Nautilus PLLC. And Brian Egan, who is my colleague here at Steptoe and who's worked in national security matters inside the government as well as in private practice. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, There's a lot of stuff to cover. Uh, We're not going to try to cover everything that happened while we were on hiatus, because that's all of August, plus a little. But we will cover some stories that are a little older than usual, uh, uh, and I think... China produced the most actual news, uh, tech news. Matthew, uh, lots happened involving China. Not surprising, maybe, but China itself made a lot of this news.
1: Yes. So it did it through a few different means. First, it passed as of September 1, a data security law, which is going to, which allows China to sort of classify data or it's going to mandate that companies operating China classify their data based on China's national security priorities. They also passed a data privacy law on November 1st, and that law has a lot of the features that we've sort of gotten used to in GDPR. It talks about always minimizing the scope of data you gather for the purpose. It talks about giving, in this case, primarily consumers' opt-in rights it also creates rules around outbound transfer of data. And what's interesting is to see how quickly China has taken advantage of these laws for to further policy ends.
0: Yeah, I, I, I do think that I've been complaining for years that GDPR and privacy laws generally serve the interests of the powerful and the privileged, in part because they're so vague that you can pretty much hang anybody for violating them, as we've seen with Facebook in the United States and all of Western, all of the American companies in Europe. And I think the Chinese finally realized that's not a bug, it's a feature. This gives them yet another oh, a stick to beat their tech sector, our tech sector, Europe's tech sector, if Europe ever gets one uh, with. Uh, and nobody can complain because everybody in the West has the same law.
1: That's right. And I think uh, from China's perspective, it even gives um, the government their greater power than Brussels ever dreamed of, because they don't have to contend with a truly independent judiciary or any sort of check on whatever interpretation they might come up with. So I, to your point, I think it's it's much more a sword than a shield for China's individuals. It's more of a sword for its government. And, uh, you know, if you look at what they did to Didi, the uh, ride hailing firm, you can see them beginning to rattle that saber. Or they,
0: oh, no, actually, told they pl- Didi... pl- plunge it deep into people's breasts. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah where they told Didi to, that you can't bring on any new users of your app. And so I think we're going to see more and more of this. And this is just replicating what people began talking about maybe 10 or 15 years ago which is that there'd be sort of two spheres of the internet. There'd be the West and there'd be China. And this is just taking that, you know, another step down that road.
0: Yeah, we're going to see the same thing in antitrust. We're already seeing the same thing in competition law in China. Corrupt practices, anti-bribery, same thing. It's highly discretionary in a context where there's a, there are a lot of bribes being paid. Which ones you prosecute is a deeply political decision. So yeah, it's uh, we have handed a lot of, sor- of swords to to the Chinese government by pitching all of these laws to them. And we're going to... Um, probably not going to love the consequences of of doing that. So the SEC has started pushing back on some of the mechanisms that Chinese companies and U.S. investors have used to try to participate in the growth of companies in China Uh, and the Chinese policies like the security, data security policy that have cut off access to data. What's the SEC's latest move in this area?
1: Well it's a pretty big move. They've sent essentially said that no Chinese listed no Chinese company can list on a public exchange in the US right now. And to the extent that there are Chinese companies that are already listed, some of them use these variable interest entity mechanisms, which are often based in places like the Cayman Islands. And the yeah, SEC this is where, where you entity. end up.
0: You, you end up with a partial interest in a company that <laughs> has some vague but not very clear ownership right to the Chinese company.
1: Right. So you hold a share in something that may be related to the operating entity, but you don't hold a share in the operating entity. Typically, for most companies, the operating entity, of course, is the one that signs contracts and employs people and takes on risk and executes obligations, this is, think of it, if you think of it like an upside down tree, it's a, a distant appendage from the Opco. And so the SEC has said, if you if that's your mechanism, you need to clearly disclose that in your public filings. They're also mandating that you start to disclose, and this is where DD comes back, have disclosures around the risks that uh, As a Chinese entity, you may be under as a result of both the data privacy and data security laws. And so, this is all coming on the back of what has been a long running dispute between Chinese listed companies on our exchanges around the fact that they don't allow the same level of accounting oversight that's mandated upon US listed companies with regard to the PCAOB. And so, this is just more of the wall being built between. The West, I'll say the West generically, because there are lots of companies listed on the U.S. exchanges that aren't U.S.-based, and Chinese companies. And so it'll be interesting to see when this pause ends, and if it ends, what will it look like in terms of the rules that Chairman Gensler demands Chinese companies
0: comply with. Yeah. And, and the other thing I thought was interesting is that SenseTime has an IPO in Hong Kong. SenseTime is an AI face recognition firm, which you would think would be two strikes against uh, you know, Chinese face recognition. Uh, and indeed, they were put on the entity list, which means that no company can sell them anything from the United States if it's on the, the technology list the, that commerce maintains and commerce maintains, you know, practically everything is on their list pencils are on their list. And despite that, this is, it looks like it's going to be a pretty successful IPO, which argues, as you said, for the idea that we're already seeing a pretty substantial divergence in the two economies.
1: I think that's right, Stuart. And I think you're, you know, they listed on the Hong Kong exchange. And I think that's going to be China's outlet for its sort of, you know, highly valued tech entities. If you're In the Chinese sphere, you list in Hong Kong. And what will be really interesting to see is, as we see this divergence in sort of where companies list and why they list, what will be really interesting to see is whether investors sort of differentiate where they're putting their money. Are they going to be agnostic and invest wherever the money is? Or will investors sort of say, I'm a Western player or I'm a Chinese player? And how will different funds operate? You know, As you know, Stuart, there are all kinds of funds that are politically motivated or they're interested in the environment. It would be an interesting proposition to see if someone wanted to do an exclusive Chinese fund or an exclusive Western fund for whatever reason. So it'll be interesting to see how the marketplace of investors reacts to all this.
0: Yeah, the political risk is so significant that it seems to me if you're going to invest over there, you really have to specialize in the Kremlinology of Beijing.
1: Absolutely. I mean, because this, you know, and this goes back to the point I made at the top when we were talking about the data privacy law. Without an independent judicial system, you know, there's no protection for you. And so you've really got to have a good sense of which way the political winds are blowing. And they can change direction dramatically quick, as we've seen uh, with other Chinese tech giants like Ant Financial and others. When the Chinese you know, leadership decides you're out of favor, you're out of favor fast. And that could really have some downside risk if you're an investor.
0: Yep. Okay. Well, let's switch uh, our focus to Capitol Hill because kind of surprisingly in a time when the partisanship couldn't be higher, there's a breach notification bill that is, or two bills now on the House and Senate side that have bipartisan support that look as though they are within, that they're conferenceable. Uh, The differences are not enormous, but it will make a pretty significant difference in cybersecurity practice. Michael, uh, how good are the prospects that we'll see uh, an actual law by the end of the year?
2: Yeah, Stuart, it's got a real chance. You have on one side a Senate bill led by the Intelligence Committee Chairman and Vice Chairman Mark Warner and Marco Rubio, and joined on to joined by almost all of their colleagues on the Intelligence Committee, that is one contender. And then on the House side, a separate bill drafted by the House Homeland Security Committee, another bipartisan effort. So this is an interesting issue where, unlike many other issues on Capitol Hill, this is cutting not on party lines, Democrat versus Republican, but along committee lines. The Intel Committee on the Senate side versus the Homeland Committee, and the goal appears to be to have a a pre-conferenced version that could hitch a ride on the Defense Authorization Act that will, if tradition holds, will be enacted by Congress later this year. They've, they've gotten fifty-some you know, defense bills in a row enacted into law, so they're hoping to keep the the streak alive. You know, one downside of this approach is that you know neither bill has been through a formal committee process. Neither has been you know marked up and with a chance for other members to offer amendments that might improve both bills. And neither has been through the floor of either house. So they're going to try to do all of the the conferencing work up front and behind closed doors and then put it in the defense bill and get it enacted into law by the end of the year. And, you know, there are, while there's a lot of common ground between the two bills, there are some pretty significant differences as well. And industry appears to be lining up behind the, the house homeland effort,
0: let me just stop you on that because it's counterintuitive that the House of Representatives would be more business-friendly than the Senate, and yet that seems to be the case with this draft.
2: Yeah, and I don't have a good explanation for <laughs> why the the House has been more susceptible to to industry influence than than the Senate here. But you know, the House bill will give companies seventy-two hours to report an intrusion, and only requires them to report confirmed intrusions to Department of Homeland Security, to CISA, the Senate bill, on the other hand, only gives them 24 hours, and they have to report not only confirmed intrusions, but potential intrusions, which, you know, you can just imagine being a a nightmare trying to sort through all of the the possible reports of potential intrusions and and the flood of data that will come into DHS. House bill also. Yeah, has you, a you, you can imagine them yeah. just
0: saying, let's just keep this line open. <laughs> yeah. And,
2: and, I, and I think, you know, ultimately you'd want to get this to the point where companies are able to share in an automated fashion and everyone has agreed on the parameters of a report such that this is all happening automatically. And it, there's no should we report or shouldn't we report discussion within a company because it's all been worked out in advance of these are the kinds of incidents that everyone agrees we need to report and they will report and these are the kinds of incidents that we don't need to report. And that allows, that kind of real-time sharing would allow the reporting to actually be meaningful. Because the, you know, the idea behind all of this is you'll report the information to, to DHS and they'll be able to share the technical indicators of a compromise with other companies in time for them to defend themselves against the same attack. And it seems difficult to see how you're going to you know, share the information on a meaningful, in a meaningful way with 72 hours for companies to share, and then goodness knows how long it takes the government to push the technical information out to other companies after that.
0: Yeah, I think both of those deadlines make it unlikely that you're going to be able to give people, in most instances, an estimate of how serious the intrusion might be. Uh, But once you report, you have to continue to report. So I guess the theory is you barf up whatever you got, and then you uh, start providing more detailed and more useful information over time.
2: That's right. And both bills, you know, outsource the actual details of what you know what must inf- what information must be reported to CISA in a rulemaking process. So that's where really, really the devil will really be in the details to make sure that the report is something that's useful and meaningful. And not just a flood of noise of, you know, here's a lot of information. We don't know what it is. Sort it out, government.
0: Yep. And I noticed they give CISA subpoena power, which CISA hasn't had much of until now. So this is a pretty big deal for DHS.
2: It is. Uh, and CISA has been after the administrative subpoena power for years. So you know, there, there are some good arguments as to why they, they would need that. Some of the you know, good arguments on the IRS, uh, on the opposite side of the measure as well. One aspect I was hoping to see in these bills that I don't, so far at least, is some attempt to take on the patchwork of existing regulatory requirements to report from the SEC, from FERC, from the FTC. The House bill has a provision that asks CISA to try to harmonize its requirements with other regulatory requirements, but that just means that you won't have contradictions, hopefully, not that you actually allow companies to make one report instead of six
0: yeah I, that is unfortunate. I mean, it strikes me as unlikely that the House can go further than that because it starts to tread on the jurisdiction of other committees, which will be ferocious in their opposition. Senators care less about jurisdiction, I mean maybe it'll come out of the uh, the Senate uh, but probably it'll be the it'll have to be the next legislation rather than this one as coordination efforts start to get a little threadbare yeah okay so <laughs> While we were in hiatus, the entire U.S.-supported regime of Afghanistan collapsed practically overnight, uh, and there have been some stories about the tech consequences of that, which I would say are distinctly second or even third order, but probably with a catastrophe this large, even second and third order effects are pretty big. Brian what what are the tech consequences of the fall of Afghanistan or at least the American backed regime there
3: well there's one one thread is a concern about the data that the government of Afghanistan had compiled on afghan citizens for payroll and other purposes largely at the encouragement of the US government and other western forces so there have been stories about a database the Afghan personnel and pay system that includes information on maybe millions of Afghans. It was used essentially to help combat fraud in the pay system, both at the MOD and the Interior Ministry in Afghanistan. And there's concerns, legitimate concerns about some of the data, family data, community data, potentially being sensitive for the folks in that database if the Taliban uh, controls that database from a second thread that may be of more interest to US companies is really uh, tied to the prevalence of US tech firms in Afghanistan where Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, Microsoft all had or have significant presences in Afghanistan in one way or the other. So for example, Google reportedly had contracts where two dozen of the key Afghan government ministries hosted their email accounts on Google servers. So one issue Coming from that is a security issue where Google, presumably under the encouragement of the US government, has apparently taken steps to secure the email on those servers from the Taliban, who is reportedly trying to access the email and other data on those servers. Microsoft also has access to or contracts for servers with some of the other government ministries and presumably is under kind of the same types of steps and inquiries.
0: Of course, they have this problem every time government changes, although this is obviously a a big change. But this time they can say, we're not setting a precedent here in refusing to give this to the Taliban because the Taliban is a, an organization we can't do business with anyway under U.S. sanctions that's, law.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. That in a, in a way, and and it's the Taliban has been complaining about this, actually, that the U.S. tech companies actually have legal obligations not to do business with the Taliban, given that the Taliban is subject to U.S. sanctions. Actually, the Taliban is subject to U.N. Security Council sanctions as well. And so there's a, a kind of another issue where – The Taliban uses WhatsApp and Twitter in particular to communicate. WhatsApp's official policy is we don't allow sanctioned groups to use our platform. Of course, because the communications are encrypted on WhatsApp, figuring out Who is actually officially affiliated with the Taliban is tricky for WhatsApp, but they are going about trying to shut down accounts where they find out about them, where there's an official connection to the Taliban. Same with Twitter, same with YouTube, uh, which has led the Taliban spokespersons to complain that the U.S., which is supposedly in uh, favor of free speech, is cutting off the Taliban's uh, voice because of the Taliban's reliance on these platforms.
0: I love the idea that the Taliban is complaining that they're being knocked back to the 13th century by uh, U.S. technology <laughs> yeah, measures. there's
3: <laughs> there's lots of ironies built in built into a lot of the subplots here.
0: Okay, I, I, that strikes me as you know interesting, but probably it will end up resolving in a way that's not very favorable to the Taliban without a lot of liability to to U.S. companies. Although WhatsApp's ability, you know, if they just have a little pop-up box that says, by the way, are you a member of the Taliban? I- Click yes or no. I it, No one will think they're really enforcing the rules. But if they start to find ways to identify Taliban accounts by their metadata, they're setting a precedent for doing that in other contexts that they may be less comfortable with. All right. Well, from the Taliban to Texas, I... I Texas surprised everybody over uh, August 1st when all the Democrats left and nothing could be passed. And then the Democrats came back and seem to have resolved that they're just going to sit on their hands and let the Republicans pass everything they want. So they passed a voting fraud regulation, and then they passed what has made most of the headlines in the last week, an anti-abortion law that uh, focuses on, basically says you can't get an abortion after the first six weeks, uh, and no exemptions for rape and incest, uh, and probably most interesting, most clever as a a strategy and the thing that led to the Supreme Court decision is a provision that says the Texas government may do nothing to enforce this law and therefore, in parentheses, can't be enjoined from enforcing the law because they're not allowed to. Instead, it's a kind of bounty system in which you can get $10,000 dollars if you can sue anybody who is aiding and abetting in the provision of an illegal and now illegal abortion, a, and your attorney's fees will be paid, a, and anybody who wants to bring that lawsuit can, aiding, abetting liability is really broad, uh, and the tech firms have responded quite aggressively, I thought. Michael, what, what you can correct my summary of what the law does, but the tech firms clearly have responded to this as though it were a a major human rights affront.
2: Yeah, I I think your summary was about rights, Stuart, and you know, this is almost something that like a devious Fed Courts professor would have come up with for for a final exam question of a, a private yeah. privatizing uh, well, the, enforcement. The
0: guy who came up, yeah. the guy who came up with it, it was, I think, an office of legal counsel uh, and and solicitor general of Texas. I, uh, it, it's, it is clever because it means, I, it, what I think clever about it is because there's some doubt about whether the Supreme Court is going to get rid of Roe v. Wade. It, you have to face the prospect that you will lose these cases at the end of the day. A- and that changes the dynamic. You don't know when you're going to get sued, but there's a real possibility that if you do get sued, you'll get sued big by many people. You'll pay like paying out $10,000 to lots of people and won't get it back ever, or at least not for a long time, which really adds to the chilling effect of the law.
2: Yeah. And, this sort of novel scheme in which pre-enforcement challenges are impossible, you know, there's good reasons to doubt that, that these sort of schemes you know, will hold up in the long run if other states start to taking a, a similar approach. But I, I can guarantee that if New York or California were to uh, take a similar approach to, say, you know, firearm rights under the Second Amendment, that we would probably not see the same reaction from tech companies to offer to pay the legal costs of, of anyone who ends up being held liable in one of these suits, and we'll see how these lawsuits actually play out. I mean, the, the effect of this law is going to be that because pre-enforcement challenges were impossible, that they will actually be litigated, and they'll be litigated in Texas state court. And probably the law will be unconstitutional in some circumstances under the current you know doctrine of Roe and Casey, and it will probably be constitutional in other. And it has some fairly intricate severability provisions. But back to the tech response, you know, so you have Uber and Lyft rushing in to say that they'll pay the legal costs of any drivers who are transporting someone to, you know, a woman to, to, to have an abortion, and you also have GoDaddy, the internet hosting company, taking down the website of a pro-life whistleblower site. It appears that the pro-life whistleblower site then bounced around to a couple other hosting companies who might be more amenable to them, but still hasn't figured out a way to, to keep their website up if you go to it today, it redirects to the Texas Right for Life organization. So a different pro-life website, not the one they are intending to uh, right. to put up. And this is I and, think, and really, not
0: one that is taking all the information. I, that's uh, right.
2: Not, not a website that allows people to submit whistleblower claims on potential defendants for these future lawsuits.
0: And I, I think this is. I working. think this is. Yeah. My sense is this is a secondary issue. The, the the chilling effect occurs whether or not there's a whistleblower site. So people are just you know mad as hell and that this is something they can strike out at. I'm just not sure how big a deal it is. I do wonder, here's, let me ask you this question. Do you think that this makes GoDaddy and Lyft and Uber potentially liable for aiding and abetting violations of the statute?
2: You know, aiding and abetting liability can be so broad that they, they could be. And I think that they might welcome the chance to to litigate.
0: Yeah, yep, yep, you may be right. Although I I think you're right that if it's in Texas court, that means they they have to take, you know, three appeals or two appeals up through a judiciary. That's been appointed by a lot of Republican governors uh, and and then bet everything a Hail Mary to the Supreme Court to get cert granted. And the Supreme Court doesn't have to grant cert or maybe take an appeal, but they don't have to take the first case that comes along. So this could be a five-year process for people who are subject to suit.
2: That's right. And the, as you know, the chilling effect endures while this is all litigated. So, you know, I, I think this is part of a broader trend, though, of, of tech companies' attempting to insert politics and put you know their political views into business decisions you know again maybe for some of these companies that is part of their business model now
0: yeah i'm i my my theory is it's really part of their hr policy that they, they need engineers and the engineers are afraid to work in places that have non-progressive reputations that there are you know there there are a fair number of engineers and engineer adjacent employees who feel very strongly about this and who won't let you express contrary views. So it feels as though the entire workforce is on one side of all these issues. And that's my sense is a lot of this is fear of looking like a company you don't really want to work at anymore.
2: Well, I think that's right. And it's hard to have a sense of how many of the engineers, for instance, actually hold these views. There's a, certainly a small minority of outspoken you know, activists within these companies that do hold those views, and the management obviously cares a lot about the possible impact that those that outspoken minority can have on the rest of their workforce, on their public image, on their you know relationships with other tech companies and the like. And you know this again, a, a trend you see not just in GoDaddy and you know the Texas abortion law. But also a, a story that came out a couple of weeks ago that Amazon Web Services, you know, a cloud services provider, is going to start increasing its content moderation efforts. You know, previously, there was a big difference between social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter and their content moderation policies and the cloud services providers, which took more of a, well, they, I, I think they would dispute strongly the notion that they were common carriers, but took an approach much closer to that, that they didn't really mind what content you had on their cloud services so long as you didn't you know, commit any illegal activities or do anything technically harmful to the cloud services.
0: So yeah, this is pretty scary. There are only three cloud companies that you know, most people would use, and the idea that they will impose their politics on everybody who uses them is pretty striking. I had a 24-hour period in which Dropbox, if I, no, Google, Go, Google Docs, told me that I couldn't have access to the spreadsheet that I used to plan the the podcast, you know, the schedule of podcasts, because it violated their terms of service. And I thought to myself, God only knows what, what they're thinking. They took it down and took it back very fast. But it said to me, they're reading my documents that I maintain and edit, and they're deciding whether they're politically acceptable or not, that's pretty disturbing. And of course, and I've started to do this, you can encrypt it, and then they can't read it. But it's, it's simply unacceptable that people who are basically offering a service in which you send your documents to them because they have a better mechanism for storing them than you do. And then they say, oh, I'm sorry, we don't like your politics. We're going to take your document back. In fact, we're not going to give you access to it. So I I noticed that uh, Texas has passed a law banning censorship of conservatives, a sort of following in the Florida footsteps, but thank God, without the Disney exception. Uh, uh, did you read the the law? Is it basically just DeSantis swarmed over or uh, and, and de disney or is there something interesting there?
2: Uh, it's pretty similar to the Florida attempt. They, they limited it to social media platforms of 50 million or more users, which I think is their way to capture the folks that they want to, Facebook and Twitter, and, and not inadvertently sweep in a, a smaller company, you know, a, maybe a Texas-based company, That has a service that might be construed as a social media platform, you know, and I suspect that law will meet similar first amendment challenges that the Florida law has, has received. And the Florida law right now is enjoined and on appeal to the 11th circuit. So I, I think one of these state laws will end up at the Supreme Court and that will be the way it is decided because there, there is a lot of momentum in, in red states to take on big tech censorship for just the dynamics you described
0: so i it seems to me you could give this exactly the same treatment that the abortion law gave their structure there is some doubt about how the supreme court is going to come out on this case uh, whether 230 really is as broad as silicon valley's lawyers will tell you and a lot of judges have have been persuaded to say or whether the the supreme court's going to take another look and cut it back if you think there's a risk they'll cut it back then having large liability accumulate over years while you're litigating your test case is pretty disturbing and so they could set something up that said no the state of texas is not going to enforce that but people who have been censored can sue they can get ten thousand dollars for every act of censorship they can get their attorney's fees they they never get charged with attorney's fees with having filed the cases and you'll find out if you're google or facebook or aws at the end of five years whether you owe all that money that's been accumulating in state court
2: yeah i, I think the difference there would be because of 230 the tech companies would assert that as a shield in in in, yeah. in, 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 in litigation right and the, the issue of whether 230 immunizes that i think the, the question address, right. yeah that's the question
0: 230 does not i in my view it's not as broad and red Straight, as opposed to with the spin that that Silicon Valley successfully put on it, read straight. I, it says. I think when you are refusing to publish something, you need to. Ha- it, it needs to be because it is pornographic. Violent or similarly objectionable, not just objectionable to your woke workforce. And that's a hard question. The law is mostly against me right now. The decisions are mostly against me, but I think the law is written is, is closer to my view. I think it's also where the Supreme Court could easily end up. And so... For companies that are relying on that broad reading, which is really what you have to do to justify all the censorship that's going on, there's some potential liability here. And you could see some chilling of their enthusiasm for censorship if, if somebody took the same tack. So it'll be interesting to see how this abortion law works out, not just because of the abortion issue, but because of what it mean, might mean for the anti-censorship provisions of state law.
2: Yeah. And as you note, there are a couple of circuit court opinions that do adopt that broad reading of 230. And there was a very good opinion by Justice Thomas late last year pointing out that just the text of the law does not support that broad reading. So I, I could easily see the Supreme Court adopting a, a narrower view, but it'll be a couple of years before we get there. And in the meantime, you know, these circuit court opinions, I think there's a, you know one of the Ninth Circuit that's especially uh, especially broad, will we'll continue to be the basis, I think, for the tech companies censorship. And as you you know, you really don't have a lot of options when it comes to cloud services. There's a couple of big providers, and it's not easy to go start your own cloud service if you are dissatisfied (laughs) with with the commercial options.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, maybe there's a way to do this. Maybe there, that somebody could set up a, a, a service in which he says, send me your stuff. I have a little cloud, but basically what I do is I just encrypt all your stuff and I send it to AWS. They don't know who it's from. They don't know what it is, but I do. And when you ask for your stuff back, I'll decrypt it and give it back to you. Uh, so it may be that uh, you can beat the, uh, the sensors with, with encryption. Yeah.
2: At least until AWS says that violates the terms of service for reasons they won't explain, and then shuts them down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's right. You're exactly right. Uh, all right, so let's go back to China, but this time uh, the U.S. perspective on it. Matthew, we've been we've heard a lot over the last six months about the China Initiative at the Justice Department, uh, and the fact that there are. China economic espionage investigations in every single district of the that the FBI has agents in charge of. The terms of that engagement have changed in the last few weeks as a bunch of cases have been dropped by the Justice Department. They were mostly visa fraud cases in which people hadn't properly and Justice's view disclosed their connection to the Chinese government before they took money from U.S. institutions. What's the reason for this? And what does it mean going forward for the China initiative? It's hard to say. So,
1: I mean, the news reporting says that five of these cases have been dropped. We know that there are far more than five being prosecuted or pursued right now. So I don't know if this is simply a matter of new management of justice looking at this and saying, we're going to focus on the good cases, or we're going to focus on certain profile of cases that are worthy of our time. That could be it. Could be simply just a, you know management of resources, different point of view, or it could be something you know that uh, reflects more of an ideological point of view at justice. Maybe that that you know unless it's really a dead to rights case, they're not going to pursue it. They're not going to investigate the uh, invest the resources. I, you know it's hard to draw any real conclusions based on five cases being dropped. So, you know, I think until we see more, it's just, I think the jury's still out, Stuart.
0: Yeah, my, my bet is that this is, there there is a, a change of administration issue here that the people who do not like these prosecutions have been making a lot of noise to the effect that it's racist, that it's Chinese profiling and the like. And these cases turn out, it, it, it turned out they were not great cases. There had been an FBI memo that was disclosed questioning whether, questioning whether this there really was a problem here. And a lot of these folks had been in jail about as long as they were likely to be sentenced to. So there were a lot of reasons to get rid of this, but I do think that it means that the claims that there's Chinese profiling going on here have enough legs that we're going to see justice pulling back its enthusiasm for these investigations, which, after all, started under the Trump administration. I
1: think that's true. But I I do, you know, and I think most, you know, Biden administration fans have to acknowledge that there is something going on here. And so the idea that you're going to walk away from the concerns that these entanglements between Chinese academics and the Chinese government, military, intelligence community, I I don't think we can just step back away from that entirely. So it'll just be interesting to see how the Biden administration tries to strike this balance.
3: Because I I, I think the
1: problem is endemic across academia. And it was something that, frankly, was not paid attention to for way too many years. And so if there's an adjustment in course, I could see that. But I don't think you sort of turn your eyes away from the problem itself.
0: That's probably right. It will be interesting to see how the universities for a long time just said, you know, talk to the hand. We're not interested in hearing about uh, this from the federal government. And then their professors started getting prosecuted, and they got very nervous that they would get prosecuted for hiding connections to the Chinese government. And so it may be that having realized how much risk they're under, we'll see the institution's adopting internal controls that are meant to prevent and identify uh, uh, possible misrepresentations and failure to disclose connections to the Chinese government. And if that's the case, then the Justice Department can say, well, we can declare victory here. We don't have to go out and prosecute everybody as long as we've got the fear of God placed in the, the folks who are administering the universities. Right. Yes. Agreed.
2: Uh, and and you know, one, one one group who certainly is profiling here is the Chinese government because they're you know, specifically targeting you know, Chinese researchers with their recruitment attempts, Chinese Americans you know, because they make an appeal to to heritage. So uh, it struck me as this this story is, 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 is certainly a, a good intent to look for profiling and to uh, be be conscious of that. But they're sort of ignoring the uh, the elephant room here that the one profiling is the Chinese government and its economic espionage.
0: Absolutely. I, I mean, I I have talked to people, you know, second generation Australians who say, you know, when I deal with uh, uh, Chinese government officials, they tell me I have an obligation to my country, which is theirs, uh, to provide information or assistance. It's a profound cultural view that if Americans had it would be condemned as racist out of hand, and I think that expectation that at the end of the day anybody who's overseas but ethnically Chinese owes something to the motherland is going to mean that if you're looking for people who are at the uh, in the target zone for recruitment by the Chinese government, it's going to be people who are ethnically Chinese. All right, uh, so. Apple made a lot of news that we can skip over because their most recent news is, uh, never mind, Uh, not quite, but close. Uh, Michael, uh, they had a whole bunch of child pornography uh, prevention or regulation moves that they were planning and now have backed off saying, we're going to rethink this and come back and try it again which they may or may not do. What was it they were going to be doing that led them to get into so much trouble? And where do you think it really is now that they've announced that they're putting it on a back burner?
2: Well, what Apple was trying was a fairly clever approach to detect child pornography, uh, another child abuse material, on users' iPhones without sacrificing the privacy values that that Apple has prided itself on and really made part of its marketing campaigns in the past. And the way they were going to do that was by matching encrypted hashes of the images on users' phone against known child pornography encrypted hashes. So the National Center for Missing and Exploited uh, Children maintains a, a database of known child pornography images those images would be hashed and then they would compare the hashes to each other. And if there was a sufficient quantity of matches between a user's phone, between the hashes on the user's phone and the hashes in the database, I think 30 was the number that Apple said would trigger a review, then it would go to a manual human review. And if the human at Apple looked at it, only then would it be referred over to law enforcement. There were a couple big problems with this approach, but at least was was novel in its attempt to avoid actually reviewing the user content to identify child pornography, at least not until it reached that threshold and got to the, the manual review. One obvious problem is that you know, you're relying on I mean, here the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children to come up with the, the database of hashes to, to look for, but you know, the, the, that process of comparison is a black box, and you know I have no reason to think that the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children would abuse it. But you can imagine, certainly, speaking of China, as we uh, were earlier, that if they were to you know, upload images of, uh, tied to political dissent as child pornography, then you know, that's what the system is designed to look for, and that's what it'll match against. And Apple has no way of knowing what images are in the database it matched against, at least until that the Chi- the,
0: As I remember, Michael, that the, the Chinese government famously banned for a while all images of Winnie the Pooh because there was a meme going around that Xi Jinping looked just like Winnie the Pooh. Uh, that was offensive to, obviously, Xi Jinping. Uh, so yes, you can imagine that there are a whole bunch of images that the Chinese government would love to have banned as unacceptable. And they can do it now, right? I, I, this is what, what I'm, I find most interesting. The When the FBI asked the Apple to come up with a way to upgrade update their software in a way that would allow the FBI on one phone to skip the 10 bad pin number limit so that they could run to exhaustion and find the the pin that would get them into the terrorist phone Apple refused saying if we had demonstrated that we could do that then a whole bunch of bad com- countries would ask us to do that for their own purposes, for their own evil censorship purposes. And what they did in, in announcing they were going to do this for child pornography is announce, yeah, we can do that. And so if you're a bad government, you now know that if, you've, if you're determined enough, you can go to Apple and say, we want you to do that, but for Winnie the Pooh. Uh, and now that Apple has demonstrated that it's doable... They don't have any any place to hide other than, I guess I don't really want to do business here that badly.
2: Which, as we've seen from some of the recent reporting on the various compromises Apple made to do business in China, you know, their track record, track record suggests that when given the choice between giving up the Chinese market and compromising and giving the government what it wants, they will give the government what it wants. You know. Apple is in a tough spot, as I, I think all of the, the tech companies are with this issue. Obviously, they have a, a noble intent of trying to reduce um, and eliminate you know, the, the transmission, the spread of child pornography on their devices. But the rollout here was, I think, you know, a little ham-handed, and I am skeptical that they'll be able to come up with a way to address the privacy concerns when they, if, if they do come back later this year.
0: But doing nothing is not an ideal option either. You know, Facebook apparently reports 200 million child porn files a year to NICMEC and Apple reported 250. That's like multiple orders of magnitude. It, 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 you, you can't say that Apple is trying very hard if that's all they've done. Uh, and I my bet is they intend to start encrypting everything that is sent to the cloud, which means they'll be even less available to law enforcement than is today. And this was probably their effort to say, but that's okay. We can at least take care of the child porn problem by using this cool mechanism for inspecting hashes on the phone. If they don't do that, and then they try to encrypt everything that goes to the cloud, they're really thumbing their nose at Nick Mick and everybody else who's worried about child abuse, plus the FBI and law enforcement, uh, in a way they haven't up to now. So they are, I, th- I think they're going to be in a bad spot, and so maybe having this just. Down the memory hole isn't going to work for it.
2: Yeah, and you know they also tried to to roll this out at the same time that they rolled out a feature to alert parents of potentially you know obscene or sexual content on their children's text messages in their iMessages, which again seemed like a, a a good feature, have helping parents to you know and not too controversial. To, it, right? it
0: wasn't but, all that controversial,
2: right? Not controversial, but because they did it at the same time as this photo scanning. Measure the two were easily conflated as Apple is now going to start going through all your iMessages to look at the pictures that you're texting. So I, I I think they really could have done a lot better job in in how they were thinking about you know which features to pair together and how to do the rollout of it. You know, putting it into the release notes for an update to iOS instead of trying to sneak it through in the middle of the night was not not a good
0: strategy. Okay, so let's do three quick hits. Uh, Brian NSO Group is being investigated by Israel as a result of the leak of some of its target uh, information, which it insists was not its target information. This is the first time the Israeli government has done anything that kind of lifts an eyebrow at NSO. Do you think this is serious or is it just as one person described it?
3: I think it's a necessary step by the Israeli government that's unlikely to yield any meaningful changes. You know, the Israeli government already regulates NSO, the MOD licenses the exports of its technology and software already. So the idea that the Israelis don't already know a lot of what NSO is up to is is not true.
0: Yeah. And presumably they have, you know, they have an interest in having Israeli software on as many controversial phones as possible. <laughs> yeah.
3: I, you know, if they can get to the bottom of the, the list of 50,000 phone numbers and what that actually means, and if it means anything, that would be interesting. But I think you're right that they're already picking the friends who get access to this technology. I, I don't think that's really going to change because of this this publicity.
0: Okay. All right, Michael, the the Cyberspace Solarium Commission will not die, and I kind of have a a sneaking uh, admiration for them. They are determined to keep pushing their recommendations, and they've put out a report card saying, uh, hey, we got, I think, 40% of what we asked for the first time, and we think we're going to get another 25%, and there's only 5% that we think we're not going to get, obviously there's a certain amount of gilding of the lily here, but they actually have had a significant impact. What did you think of? You know, what did you learn from looking at that report card?
2: Yeah, it you know, goes to show that Congress can be quite consistent on some things if you get again if you get the bipartisan support, which this commission had, and some of the recommendations were well-founded. Some of them we'll see how the, you know, how the national cyber director position really is going to play out, but. There's no denying that they've had success by continuing to to push on their recommendations, but you know the stats are a little misleading when you talk about only five percent of their recommendations have serious implementation problems. Those are some of the biggest recommendations. Like yeah. the, the biggest recommendation is just one recommendation. So only five percent right. have faced serious impediments, but they are some of the biggest ones. Rather than the you know let's, re, let's redo the the wire diagram of the org chart by putting in a national cyber director.
0: You're right. And I, I wonder if there was a certain amount of gaming going on when they put when they numbered their recommendations. And indeed, a couple of the ones that are not going to go anywhere, like the uh, Select Committee on Cyberspace. Uh, frankly, we don't need that. The, the Homeland Security Committee in the House in particular doesn't have that much to do. Uh, and they're de facto becoming the, the Cyber Law Committee or the cybersecurity Committee. Uh, so I the, another select committee never struck me as such a great idea. So maybe the market is telling them something that they should listen to.
2: I, I think that's right. The, the problem of Congress is rarely too few committees.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay, and... We've been talking about CFIUS for years. It's been reformed. The reforms have had major impacts on our law practice and on investment and on regulation of a whole bunch of high-tech areas. Uh, And now it's all old hat. And the UK has come up with its own version of CFIUS that is, by reputation at least, Brian, more aggressive than even FIRMA was when it reformed Cepheus two years ago.
3: Yeah, this is has a little bit of a Frankenstein's monster feel to it because, of course, the U.S. has been pushing the U.K. for years to develop a stronger foreign investment review. And this law, which will go into effect fully in January, is certainly appears to be that. There's a much broader, for example, mandatory filing requirement under the U.K. law than there is now under U.S. law, under FIRMA. There are much uh, more uh, complicated and potentially intrusive review triggering mechanisms you going for you go from 0 to 25% that's one review 25 to 50% ownership is another review 50 to 75% ownership could trigger a third review and so it, you know it's a different flavor of foreign investment review than scifius and potentially you know more more intrusive and you know more more meaningful in some ways potentially
0: all right well given how much of the industrial base that we depend on in the U.S. actually turns out to be located in other countries, the U.K., the Netherlands, Japan, Korea, Taiwan. We probably do need those countries to have all the same authorities that CFIUS has, but the U.K. seems to have sat down and drafted this from scratch in a way that probably is a little more thoughtful than even Firma in terms of saying, Well, what do we really need and let's let's give ourselves all the authority we want. When you're dealing with a parliamentary system, there isn't the same tension between the legislative branch and the executive. If the executive wants it, the legislative branch is going to give it to
3: them. We've had this tradition under CFIUS for decades of a voluntary review mechanism, which has only slightly been altered by FIRMA. I don't think the UK was quite as concerned with maintaining that, and it shows. And maybe we're going to go there as well in the United States at some point, identifying industries where really it doesn't matter who the investor is, the US government's going to have an interest in taking a look.
0: Okay, so for people who listen to the Cyber Law Podcast to get career advice, go into CIFIUS. <laughs> All right, thanks to Brian, thanks to Matthew, thanks to Michael. If you have questions, send them to Cyber Law Podcast at steptoe.com. Give us a rating. We haven't had a rating in a while because we haven't had an episode in a while. Uh, and leave us a review. I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 373 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.